Well, good morning. This morning we are in the second half of John 15, and uh, Jesus is continuing uh, this teaching on how to abide in Him. And it's a continuation from last week, and, and, and so I want to remind us of last week, we, we had this image, this illustration that we use throughout. And this illustration is called a, a cut flower illustration. It actually comes from Elton Trueblood, who was a, a mid-20th century ethicist. And it, it goes something like this, that uh, flowers, like the ones that Lonnie was just given. We, I, I should have took them from her when I came up here. Uh, f- cut flowers, flowers that are, are cut off from their source of life, from their source of vitality. Uh, well, for a time, have life. In fact, actually, usually when you cut off flowers and you put them in a vase or whatnot, they'll actually bloom and even look more alive at first for a couple days. But after some period of time, eventually you'll see a little bit of browning around the edge of the petals, and then they'll wilt, and then eventually they'll begin falling because what's happening is obvious. The flowers don't have a source of life. They're cut off from the root, and so therefore they are going to die eventually. And what we looked at last week was Jesus is saying, by abide in me, is essentially in the same way, don't be a cut flower soul. That we can go a long time, whether it's we're saying we're a Christian or we just completely reject Jesus outright, that we can live our lives and for a time it may be a ton of fun, discovery, all these things, and we, we think it's this life is everything we've ever wanted until slowly around the edges it begins to brown, it begins to wilt, it begins to fall apart. We realize we're spiritually deeply broken, cut off from the source. Jesus says dead. Now that illustration... So last week we looked at Jesus essentially saying, don't become a cut flower soul. That illustration, though, originally Elton Trueblood talked about it in terms of us as a society. And I want to zoom back up to that level of the illustration. That while it's true in individual souls that that happens when we're disconnected from Jesus, he is the vine, we are the branches, that also as a society, it, at a societal level, it's true as well. That if we are disconnected from the roots of what we believe, then actually over time a society will begin to decay and will begin to fall apart. And the idea is this, that over, True Blood said, over generations, he didn't know how long it would take, but he, his, his thesis was that we, without realizing it, have actually uprooted Western civilization from its original, its original roots. You could say its original worldview. Some will use the term like Judeo-Christian framework and ethics. And we've actually disconnected it from the beliefs, the truths that we've always held to. And now we're trying to continue as a society and for a time it may seem fun and exciting but at some point maybe it's a generation maybe it's two maybe it's three we'll begin to see the wilting we'll begin to see the petals wilt and fall why do I bring that up one I think when I describe that and I say I think that's the moment that we're in that you in an acute way probably go I think there's something to that But the other reason why I say that is because it's going to help to give us a picture of why what Jesus says in this passage may seem more acutely true than what it might have seemed like 10 or 15 years ago in our culture. When Jesus says that the world will hate you, because see what happens is eventually a civilization, let me, let me broadly paint a picture of what I think is happening right now in our cultural moment, which is if the flowers have been uprooted and we no longer are connected to those original ideas, shared ideas and defaults of what is true, what is meaning, what is the purpose, what, is, what are human beings, what is, what is the purpose of a, of, a, of a city or of a state, what's the meaning of life? all the way down to how do we live, how, what is, what's sexuality, what does it mean to be engendered, what is all these things, what do they mean, and what happens is once you're disconnected for that for a time, when you realize it's not working, everyone essentially is grabbing the flowers and trying to say, no, let's root them here, let's root them here, let's root them here, and everyone right now is fighting over where, now that we're aware that the, th- the flowers are wilting, where to re-root them. 
And so what's happening right now is we have a contesting of ideas and moral frameworks, and we don't even realize that's what's going on, and we're coming face to face. And here's the thing. If you are going to be a Christian, what that means and what Jesus is going to say to us today, he's saying nothing different has happened. It's just the social etiquette and all the things and the frameworks that we used to have, which we'll go into, have actually kind of faded away, and now we're coming face to face to a reality that is timeless, which is that you may be saying, I need to be rooted here in the good things of what God has revealed about himself, and eventually that comes up against where someone rejects it and says, actually, our lives need to be rooted over here or over here or over here. And what Jesus says is in that moment, you will acutely feel a reality, which is that as the world hates me, the world will hate you. That lands heavy. We usually like to skip over these passages, right? We love last week, right? Love one another. And then all of a sudden, there's this sharp contrast with the world will hate you. Why such strong language? How do we respond to it? That's what we're going to look at this morning. First, what we're going to look at is the love that produces hatred. The love that produces hatred. We're going to look at the dynamics of love and hatred and why are they so closely juxtaposed here. Second, we're going to look at the choice that produces endurance. The choice that produces endurance in the midst of the chaos. And then third, the action that gains souls. The action that gains souls. And it's not going to be quite what you think. So let's pray and we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. Lord, there are things here that are said that we thank you that you have revealed them. Jesus, we thank you they're on your lips because statements like this are statements we would be very careful to say if they were not revealed from you. Claims and truths that we stand upon because you've said them, but Lord, we don't stand upon them in our authority, we don't claim them in our insight or in our wisdom, but Jesus, you have made things very clear, and so Lord, we ask that today you would just give us wisdom. Spirit, you would find, make fertile ground in our souls to receive this word, and Spirit, that you would guide us in whatever might be the implications or application for our lives. And so Lord, would you give us more of Jesus this morning? Would you help us to be those who, in following him, would obey, and find life, as John's gospel is about all throughout. Find life in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this love that produces hatred. Again, Jesus suddenly transitions from talking about loving one another back in verse 17 to then all of a sudden verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. You're like, hmm, we went real fast from like Hallmark Jesus to like, I don't know, like militant Jesus, right? Like that happened real fast there, Jesus. So, and here's the thing, when we read that, so let me just finish 19 then. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but, um, but I, you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now, when I read that, the first thing that strikes me is, whoa, Jesus, whoa, Jesus, isn't that pretty strong language? Like, what, what? I mean, imagine this. You might be reading it, and you imagine you're sitting there with Jesus, and he's like, the world will hate you, and you're like, uh, well, I mean, that's, that's pretty strong language. What about, like, disagrees, right? Sees things a little bit differently, right? Like, let's, <laughs> like, Jesus needs me to be his PR agent, right? Like, let's clean this up a little bit, Jesus. And he's like, no, the world will hate you. The question becomes, why does Jesus use such passionate language, such strong language, like hate? Versus just, they'll have a difference of opinion. The second thing that's striking here is why is it not only so passionate, but why is it so personal? They will hate me and they will hate you. So why is it passionate and why is it personal? And I think those two, it's going to be very important, this section, to understand the moment that we're in culturally. It's to navigate it with wisdom. Uh, so first, why a passionate word like hate here? Uh, First, notice the core of Jesus' reasoning. He he doesn't leave off this theme of love one another, and he's like, yeah, love thing, and he's like, but guys, and he's like, Uncle Kool-Aid, like, bust through the wall, he's like, let me talk about hate, right? Like, all of a sudden, it just changes the topic. Actually, he continues on in this theme of love, but check out what he does. So, let me read it again. If you were of the world, verse 19, the world would love you as its own. 
but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Notice that theme of love is still there. Now, what do I mean by that? What Jesus is saying here is love, actually, true love will express itself in its two sides of the same coin are love and hate. Okay? That their love will actually produce a hatred. Love for something will produce hatred of some other things. So let me give you a shallow example that everyone today will understand, which is if you love the Kansas City Chiefs, you probably have a little bit of a hatred in your heart today for the Cincinnati Bengals. Amen? Right? So that's a shallow example. But then also, on a deeper example, like we looked at last week, if you love someone, if you love your kids, if you love your spouse, if you love a friend or, or a family member, and someone seeks to do them harm, you will hate that act of harm against that person you love. Love will always produce hatred of certain things. And what Jesus is saying here is if you love the world, you will hate those who, have, who are not of this world. And if you love the ways of the world, you will hate those who do not follow the way of this world. Now, that term world, let's unpack it a little bit so we understand what we're talking about here. World is a, is a term that it's almost like a zip file, right? You know a zip file, right? You, like, you, unzip, you click it, double click it, and it's like, blah, blah, all this stuff comes out. It's, it's a zip file in John's gospel for, it has, carries all this meaning. And the meaning, it's almost never used positively. You could say in John 3.16 it's used positively, uh, God so loved the world. But even then what he's saying is, I have to save the world from a reality that it is in. Because world in the gospels, and especially John's gospel, comes carrying all this kind of semantic freight of, it means it's shorthand for a way of life or a disposition that is in rebellion to God. A way Way of life or a disposition that rejects who God is and his commands and how what he's revealed about himself and how we are to live as human beings. And what Jesus says is if your disposition is that you love the world, then in fact, when it means that and you're, you're loving and saying that I love the things that are not of God, then in fact, you will hate, you will hate the call to lay those things down and follow the way of God. Jesus is saying that there is a kind of love that produces a hatred of other things. And those things that we love, we are hardwired in with the image of God. God is love, First John 4 says. And part of being made in the image of God is that we don't dispassionately choose things and grab hold of things, but in fact, we are loving beings who take hold of things passionately. And when we take hold of any kind of a distorted love, is what Jesus is saying here, then we will hate what is actually good. So that's why Jesus uses this passionate term like hate. And we could say that underneath all the etiquette and everything that's going on in our world, we would say, well, but I mean, in our life, I, we don't really get into these arguments. But what Jesus is saying is if you pull up a few more layers of the onion, because what we usually do is we have this thing called polite etiquette, right? Social etiquette. And so when we disagree with someone, we go, well, we kind of, we move on, or that's just your opinion, that's my opinion, we don't talk about it. But he says, if you would continue to talk about it, and you actually were to pull back a few more layers and say, actually, I don't think this is a matter of a difference of opinion, but I actually think I believe something that has been revealed to be true, that this a statement about sexuality, about gender, about all kinds of things in our world, those, I know those are just big hot-button ones right now, but all kinds of things in the world that they're not merely an opinion, but they're actually true. The Christian worldview, the Christian claims, the claims of the Bible are not merely an opinion. It's not if they're right or wrong. The claims of the Bible are more than that. The claims of the Bible are saying that the Christian worldview, the Christian reality is actually inescapable. And so eventually what Jesus says is if you got rid of all the etiquette and you actually got down to it and you said, actually, this is a reality, I believe this is a reality and I can't budge from it, eventually you would get to a place where you would see the anger and you would see the seething hatred for the claim. Now, that's why so passionate language, why so personal? And this is going to help us even understand more what, why Jesus says this is such a passionate thing that we would hate versus love. Uh, let me put it like this. This is a theme throughout all of John's gospel. 
John has been saying this from the beginning. You could go back and listen to the first and second or so sermons in this series where I, I kind of go in depth with these things. But there's actually a, a deep philosophical argument throughout John's gospel because Jesus is going to go on to say that I reveal the Father perfectly. L- look at his argument, actually, 21 down through 25. But all these things they d- will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. We'll come back to that. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. So Jesus is saying, he's not saying, because I, if I hadn't come incarnate, they wouldn't have sin. They wouldn't be. He's saying now they have no excuse because it's so clear because I've come into the world and really made it known. Okay? And then he says, whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, then they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is coming back to something he's been boldly repeating throughout the gospel, which is, as the Father has sent me, I perfectly speak and reveal and act on the will of God, my Father, and I, and in doing so, It's because of the fact that what I have revealed is connected to the reality of the world you live in. Okay, so let me tie these together. And this is going to connect to why what the hatred of the way of God actually leads to the hatred of God. See, what Jesus is saying throughout the Gospels is, I perfectly, God is a God who is a good God. And he has created all of reality itself and hardwired into creation, into the world, the cosmos that we live in, is the reality of God's goodness and glory, okay? This is why we said the law, Jesus said it came to fulfill the law, not abolish it. Jesus couldn't get rid of the law and be like, hey, now you can go murder people. That was just a societal construction, right? No, he's saying there's something hardwired in you in the image of God that resonates with how God has hardwired the world morally because it comes and is created to reflect something of the character of God. God made the world and designed it and called it good and said, these are inescapable realities. Then God made those known to us by graciously through his revelation. Reality comes through revelation. And now we know how to live, then it leads to righteousness. How do we live in light of God's good creation? He's told us in a very clear way through his revelation so that we might live lives attuned or aligned with the goodness of God. Now, If you reject the way of God, what God says is good, then it means when somebody comes along and says, actually, I think it's different than this. I have a different, I I stand on a different truth. And they go, what's that truth? And you say, well, this revelation that says this is what this is for and how we're to conduct ourselves and live our lives. And then they say, I hate that because I hate the ways that it says. And then when you say, well, who said that? Well, who said that is God himself who also created this, right? Do you see how it all fits together in a cohesive system? And what happens there is Jesus is saying, if you reject the ways, then you'll realize pretty soon, deep down, you reject me and you reject my Father. Why? Because we created it. And now I'm revealing truths that are in alignment with that reality. And so what Jesus is saying is that there is a love of the world that will produce a very passionate hatred of not only the ways of God and the call of God, but also the person of God himself. Now, we might know, again, like, no one, like, even before I was a Christian, I wouldn't have been like, somebody's like Jesus, and I would have been like, oh, I hate that guy, right? Like, no one does that. Uh, there's clearly like a, like there's respect, or there's, he's a good moral teacher, there are all these things, but again, what, what Jesus is saying is, I, I know that there will be these claims, but actually underneath all of it, if it comes then with the full weight of no, I actually have revealed and created things in this way, this is my way, you will eventually have to draw a line in the sand and make a choice, and at that moment you will see you hate me. These are heavy truths. You know what's even heavier? Jesus says if you have my love poured into your life and you know what I've done on your behalf. And that captivates your heart and so that now you love me. And then that overflows into if you love me, then you will, you'll trust me and you'll obey my word and you'll, you'll obey my calling upon your life. You'll know, love, and obey me. If you love me, it will produce a hatred in you of sin and death and of rebellion and all these things. You'll, you'll come to actually hate these things. Love will produce in you a hatred of what is dark and evil. 
But then Jesus says in verse 20, it will also put you at odds with then those who hate me. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. If we live our lives in such a way, and I think this is increasing, I'm going to in a second kind of give us a heuristic way of thinking about what's going on. I, I think when, like my grandparents were younger, 1940s, 50s, 60s, whatever, this might have landed to them like, well, I'm a good, respectable Christian. People don't like hate me. Whereas now I think what we feel is that there's more and more of this sense that's not just the claim that Christianity, oh, that's just your opinion, but I think it's wrong. It's more now, oh, you're a Christian, you're morally deficient. Something has changed in the course of definitely my lifetime, which is, and, and here's a heuristic way of thinking about this. What Jesus is saying is that Here's, here's where this lands for us. Why I think we hear this more acutely, whereas 15 years ago we might have heard this passage and be like, that, that seems a little extreme, the tone. Whereas now we're going, this actually kind of resonates a little bit more. Why is that? This might be a helpful way to think about it. But one of the ways to think about this is up until about 1990, 1989, wall, the Berlin Wall, all those sociological and historical moments that we try to measure these things and mark them. But... Uh, until that point, largely, we were in a positive world, which means a positive in terms of the relationship between the, like the church and, and the culture around us, society around us, which meant if you want to be a good, upstanding citizen, you had to probably attend a church, even, you know, even find any church. Yeah, if you weren't at a church or whatnot, you kind of were socially suspect. Like It gave you cultural and social currency to be a Christian. You were respected. Everyone largely had their, were kind of rooted still, even though maybe the culture, by and large, didn't hold to the whole of biblical revelation and everyone's born again, whatever categories you want to use. What I'm saying is that general acceptance of the biblical ethical framework was still largely in place. It was kind of assumed. And, and so what happened was it was kind of like, okay, you're, we're, we're all, it's kind of a positive relationship. What happened from about 1990 until about 2015 was we were in what I would call a neutral world. This is a framework actually I got from somebody, Aaron Wren, who's, it's not mine, I'm saying this, but he said it. Um, and this neutral world was a time when largely it was like, hey, uh, I, I don't know if I quite agree on this issue and this issue and this issue. I, we started realizing we have a different source of truth. And so you can kind of go do your thing, but I'll do my thing. But still there was enough of an overlap that was kind of like, that's your opinion, that's my opinion. But we can kind of coexist in a liberal democracy. And we can kind of do our own things. We can kind of dance around each other. We just won't talk about politics, right, and religion at the dinner table. But it was no Neutral. For the last eight years or so, it seems to be that there's something that's changed, which is that now there's more of a, a negative relationship, going from positive to neutral to negative, that there's more of a negative relationship, which is that now, that's why we go back to that illustration, where it seems like now, because we're having to figure out where to actually reroute our culture, our society, our how or why would you raise children? What is a human being? What do you do at the beginning of life? Is that sanctity of life? At the end of life, I was just listening to a podcast on MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying, that's legalized now for even mental health in Canada. Okay, so these things change because we're arguing over what is a human being, what is meaning, what is purpose. Who has the right to say what is true about how human beings live and what is good, right? And so now the Christian claim has come with an authority, and it's so counter to where the f others in society want the flowers to be rooted that now we realize that this is actually antithetical to the desires. And so this is, hopefully I'm describing here, why maybe a passage like this might have seemed a little strong, Jesus, 15 years ago. But now it more and more it seems like, huh, I could see that. So the question is then, how do we respond? Jesus says you're going to have a choice in how you respond. 
That's the second point. The choice that produces endurance. Because Jesus says, the good news is, that I will be with you. I will not leave you as an orphan, but my spirit will come. Look at verses 26 through 27. It says, but when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Now, I think when we read this, we often kind of, it's almost like reductionistic. We, we jump to, hey, the spirit's going to come and guide us and the Spirit's going to speak, and when these things are going on in the world, we're just going to speak in the Spirit, and it's going to, and, and it's kind of like we just talk about, like, go share the gospel. Now, it's not, it is that, but there's something first I want to make sure we see, because it's going to be very helpful in terms of our, our confidence, in terms of understanding our place in the work of God. Because notice what he says in verse 26, but when the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Notice what happens is nowhere yet has he said anything about the disciples. In other words, before we even speak, before we're even aware, God, the Holy Spirit, is already at work out there in the world, all around us, in every individual. The Spirit already goes before us. The Spirit's work precedes our work. Look down uh, 16.8. I'm not going to steal the passage for next week, but this is where Jesus is going to go. And when he comes, the Spirit, he will convict the worlds concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Goes on to unpack that. We'll look at that next week. What does it mean? But what he's saying is that now the Father, just as the Son, speaks and acts in accordance with the truth and the word and the will of the Father, so also now the Father and the Son, the Spirit, proceeds from them and is sent in order to make known the work of Christ. And what he's saying here down in 16.8 is the Spirit will make known in our consciences, in all human beings, where we are living out of alignment with what God has called good. An old term for this is the Spirit's pricking consciences. Don't you love that? We need to use old words like that again. The Spirit's pricking my conscience today. But the Spirit will make known when it's, I'm out of alignment. I'm, I'm troubled. Something's off here. Why can't I make my marriage work? Why can't I make relationships work? Why can't I just live however I want? And yet I still have this sense of guilt. And we've talked about how we have all kinds of ways now as a culture that we're trying to reframe, re-narrate, and create this false story to escape feeling that moment. But why is this all important? Why am I saying this? Because Jesus is saying the Spirit will do this work. The Spirit will. The Spirit's doing it right now. The Spirit's doing it in each of us. The Spirit's doing it in the city all around us. The question is, when we step out into our lives, we join in that work. Because then he says in 27, and you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And obviously here he's talking about to the disciples, but he also, as we'll see in the context clearly next week, he's talking about the church all throughout. Anyone who follows Jesus will bear witness because as the Spirit now is in the world, the Spirit also is making Christ known to us, and the Spirit is wanting to speak through us. So why does this matter? Every relationship, every interaction you have is not by accident. Every coworker, every classmate, every family member, every neighbor, every chance encounter when you're waiting in line at Starbucks because it always takes so long, right? When all these interactions, all the delays, all the inconveniences, all of those in every moment, the spirit is already at work. And in every moment, what Jesus is saying is, I've called you, as the Spirit leads you, to witness, to make me known. In other words, what Jesus is saying is we have a choice. And largely that choice will be, in our lives, either, you'll like this, Baptist preacher, to shush the Spirit or speak in the Spirit. And what Jesus says is that every moment we have a choice whether we are going to speak in what the Spirit is already doing and we are going to lean in and find where the, what the Spirit's, where he's drawing out, which we'll come back to practically what that looks like, or we can shush the Spirit. Now, I know immediately when I say that, some of you go, 
oh, I'm so glad that there are people here who are natural evangelists that love to do that. And this is where I kind of turn it off and I go, you know, I love the last few weeks we talked about seeking God and his word and prayer, like that's me. And then eating with others, like that's really me, right? And like, I'm really good at that. That's my spiritual gift. Like all these things about abiding and now we're talking about speaking, but that's not really like my, that's not my jam, dude. Like that's not what I do. I get it. But notice what Jesus says next. Because what Jesus says next really draws this in where it's like, no, actually, be very careful making that assumption. That's like, this is like, I check out on the speaking. That's for other kinds of Christians. 16.1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Now, he says this right after this part, and last week we saw, in the last two weeks before that, we had seen, he was talking about seeking, I've told you things so you would abide and you wouldn't fall away, that you'd be connected to me in seeking me, being in my word and being and seeking me in dependence and prayer. The word and prayer, seek me every day, we've talked about that, and then also with loving one another, abide in me by loving one another. If you do that, you won't fall, fall away, and one of the ways we can do it in our modern times where we're so isolated and living in these digital ontologies is getting together, setting a plate for dinner, and interacting with one another. So eat with one another. It's a way to think about it. Every week, grab people, eat with one another, learn to love one another. And then we go, I'm good. But Jesus says, all the things, all the things. And here he's talking about speaking, witnessing. How does that connect with, if you don't, you'll fall away. It's helpful, uh, the Greek word for, for witness, that's translated witness here, is the same word for martyr, martyros. It, it's literally translated from the Greek into English, martyr. And, and in other words, what, what, what's being said here? Witness means a martyr is someone who lays down their life for something bigger than them, right? Something, something that's bigger and more important and truer and better, worth giving their life for. And what Jesus is saying here is you will witness. And when, when he's saying you will martyr yourself, you will die to something, and you will make what is worth more than your life known. Now, what does that have to do with falling away? Jesus says in those moments, you will either have a chance when a, when a truth claim comes up. And, and hear me, I'm just to be explicit, I'm not just, we're going to get to it in a second, but I'm, I'm not just talking about how to share the gospel, right? Somebody goes, how do I know Jesus? And you're like, um, cool, the ball's on the tee. All right, gospel presentation. All right, like we're going to get to that. That's part of it. But this is broader, I think here he's saying that you will merely stand on and testify to truth, not say the lie. Acknowledge the true thing. Affirm God's word. And what he's saying is that if in that moment you will witness, and if you get used to shushing the spirit, what happens is you won't just shush the spirit when it's that moment. You're like, oh, should I go there with that person? You're like, nah. He says, you end up shushing the spirit in all kinds of areas of your life. Why is that? Because when we have a moment where it's like, I have, what happens when some, something comes up and it's like, I'm going to speak, but I won't. Why? Because in order to speak, I will have to die to my reputation. I'll have to die to just comfort. I'll have to die to, uh, which means it'll get uncomfortable. Uh, I'll have to die to my, my social standing. I'll, all kinds of things we could say. I have to die to things of this life in order to go there. And what Jesus is saying is you will, if you get used to shushing the spirit and you don't speak and you don't stand on God's word, over time you will, even in your silence, be speaking a message to your very soul. And what you'll be witnessing to yourself is that that thing that I gain when I'm quiet, when I avoid it, that thing that I'm, I'm going, well, I want to I keep this reputation or just this social moment or I, I want to keep this, this ability to just be comfortable or, or to be approved by, by this person. I, whatever that is that you're grabbing onto, he's saying that you see that as not worth your life. And in fact, actually, that thing becomes more and more the source of your life. It's what you actually build your identity on. 
It's the thing that you actually cling to. And the reason why you won't allow it to go is because you go, I can't lose this thing because if I lose it, that's where all my hope is. If I lose my social standing, if I lose my acceptance, if I lose my reputation, that's my life. And Jesus says, if you live your life trying to gain the whole world, you'll lose your soul. And so he's saying every moment that you have a chance to stand on truth, these are tangible moments in our life when he's saying, speak, because or else you will end up witnessing to your own soul that there is something in this world that is worth your life. Instead, Jesus is saying, die to those things and lay down your life to witness to the fact that life in me and my name is worth more than anything else in this world. And when you do so, you will gain, not just as we'll see in a moment, potentially your neighbor, your friend's soul, but what Jesus is saying here, clearly hear this, is the thing that you might actually gain in witnessing and speaking is your soul. Or else we get used to telling the little lie, affirming the little half-truth, and just trying to hold on to this thing over here, and it gets tighter and tighter and tighter, and we have to hold on to it more and more, and it gets smaller and smaller. And as we do so, he says, eventually, you just fall away. You just drift, degree by degree, conversation by conversation, just nodding assent at a time. I've never, until studying this passage, realized how deep that dynamic, how important it is in discipleship, that we would speak when we have a chance so that we don't witness to our own souls something that actually leads us down and away from the narrow path. So what do we do? What do we do when, when those moments come up? How do we, the action that gains souls, number three, Again, when I say the action that gains souls, it's a little bit of play on words because the souls that we often think of in terms of speaking and witnessing to Christ is usually our neighbor or a friend, the non-believer, that person out there. But what Jesus is saying is first and foremost, the soul that might actually be saved and won could actually be yours. Because you develop a habit of actually standing on God's truth, even when it's uncomfortable and those things, and you begin over time to go, this, why would I say this? Why? Because I actually do believe this. And then over time, you see the power of God in showing up and his truth being true, and you see how glorious it is, and over time, it's one cycle or the other. But what does it look like to speak the gospel to those around you? Now, we, just to be clear, one of the things we are going to be hitting on as a church is we have this death equals gain, this theme. And I know you're like, who did that branding? It's like, I don't know, blame Chris or Nick, right? Uh, they're going to be pastors. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but at the core of the gospel call is this truth that we are called to die to life in this world in order to gain life in Christ. It's all throughout Paul. It's all throughout the New Testament. We see this theme. Christ said, died. I first died and fell to the ground as a seed. And so now, if you have life in me, you will do the same. And that's where you actually gain life. And three ways we do that we've seen over the last few weeks, and we're going to be coming back to these again and again and again, is we seek God daily in his word and prayer. We seek God daily in his word and prayer. Second, that we eat regularly with other believers, weekly or more, that we actually calendar this and we seek one another as a way to love one another. So seek, eat, and last is speak. That we speak regularly of God's truth and share the gospel with others who don't know Christ. And so what does it look like to speak regularly with and speak the gospel. So I'm going to, I have 10 steps here. Now that sounds a lot longer. And it, when I said it in the first service, I was like that, that sounded like a bad idea to have 10. Um, but let me break it down like this. First few quickly, last few quickly, middle, I'm going to break it down. So before speaking, one is seeking the Lord. Here's the thing. When you seek the Lord every day, do you actually have time where you go, Lord, what are the things that are really driving my life? Why am I afraid to speak of you? And so first is to seek, to just say, Lord, examine me, search and know me, draw out the things. Make me aware throughout the day when I kind of go, like I pull up the reins in the conversation, I go, I'm not going there. It's not as much like right then you just have to be like, la, 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 and start saying stuff, but it's like be aware, like what God revealed to me where I'm doing that. Like that, that's, that's wise. The second thing then follows from that, which is to sow the seeds of God's truth in everyday conversations. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. 
we for so long were trying to like build bridges and do things that it's like we kind of played to the social etiquette and like politeness in the way that it was almost like we wouldn't use Christian terminology or even like assume anything, right? But here's the thing, we actually believe certain base assumptions about human reality. Like for instance, God's ways are good, uh, that you should be part of a church, that you should worship Jesus, that you should follow him, that you should, where are you going to church on Sunday? And so it's literally like, I, imagine you walk into work and it's just an innocuous question, yet at the same time you feel the weight of it, where you go, hey, so where do you go to church? Do you feel the assumption in there? The assumption is, uh, wouldn't you wanna worship God? Wouldn't you wanna be around God's people? And you imagine you just say that and you go, uh, and they go, uh, actually, I don't, I don't go to church. See, for so long, we've actually been playing this game where it's like the whole atmosphere and the whole environment is no one ever talks about church. Never, no one even talks about like, what are, what's, what's, where is, what is revelation? What is truth? How should we live as human beings? Things like marriage, things like sexuality. Things, and we just start, it's like a vacuum where we don't say anything that we assume and then we don't affirm anything that we actually affirm. And then over time, it becomes this environment where it's like there is no like Christian witness at all. And then the categories are so distant. We're like, how do I get from where we just never talk about anything even close to spirituality or meaning or truth or anything, and I got to like jump to the gospel? And so I think one of the things as Christians that we're going to begin doing is realizing that actually it's because of the world and the, the relationship has changed that we actually need to just kind of walk in and say things that are like, I just kind of assume certain things. Like, have you ever thought about following God? And they're like, ah, uh, ah. Uh. And you're like, well, I mean, I, I just assume like God's ways are good and so I'd want to follow him. Have you ever thought about that? Now, I'm not saying I know there is a place where I'm not saying like get fired tomorrow morning, right? But I think in each of our places, we should be asking the Spirit, here's what I'm trying to do this morning and hear this. We've talked plenty about how to draw out the hearts, which we're going to come into, and do this in a wise way. But I think as well, we've often tried to find ways that we can dance around it and still feel okay. Whereas I think there's what I'm doing today is saying, Jesus is saying, you're going to have to witness. And so there is a way to be wise and spirit-led in this, but we are going to have to walk in dependence on the spirit, trusting spirit, I will speak. What will that look like? So then third, it comes to supplication. Supplication just means make requests to God. Ask God. The Spirit goes before us. Don't, don't think of sharing the gospel as some intellectual argument, as just some kind of like political argument. This is God showing up, going before us, and preparing souls. And so ask him to do that. Ask him to prepare your soul. But then during speaking, what does that look like? So it looks like first searching your neighbor's life. Searching your neighbor's life for problems, issues, concerns. So wh when I say neighbors, I'm using it as a catch-all term for everyone in your life. God calls them your neighbor. And God has placed you in their life. And here's the thing. People want to know that you actually care about them before they care to hear what you think is true. And, and this really looks like listening. Like, you're going to ask questions that draw out where are the real pain points in their life. Where, where is the brokenness of the world surfacing in a life where, like, I'm troubled. I don't know how to make it work. I don't, like, I don't know why my marriage won't work. I don't know why relationships won't work. I don't know why if I keep pursuing this lifestyle, like, at the end of the day, I'm depressed and I'm broken down. Like, all these things that come up. Be searching. Understand the pain point. Understand what's really troubling them. You might be the only person in their life, if nothing else, just the common grace of God in their life. Like, you might be the only person who really actually, like, asks questions and cares. And so draw them out. But then next, steer. And you guys can start moving the whiteboard up here, <coughs> Chris. Uh, and so <laughs> start moving that up here for the next one. But steer. Steer the conversation to the gospel with a transition statement. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say. You want to have prepared a statement that will come out of your, your mouth when you know you're about to go there. You know what I mean by this. So if you've ever like actually thought like, I'm going to talk about Jesus with someone. So you're talking about life and they're talking about getting into the messiness. And you're like, wow. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know, you want to like start talking about the gospel. And then all of a sudden you like your whole body starts convulsing. You know what I'm talking about? Like you get all sweaty and then you start saying weird things. And you're like, the, la, la, la. did you ever date Jesus? You could have coffee with him. Do you know Abraham, why he had he, when he had coffee with Jesus, you know why? Because he brews it, right? Because he was a Hebrew. And then you, like, look for a back door and you're out of there, right? Like, oh, I escaped, right? Like, when we get into the transition, you want to be ready to steer to the gospel and be ready with, like, some statement that naturally brings up, that brings you right there to the gospel. Like, just get there. 
and, and so what I'm going to say with this, this gospel translation, by the way, there is a book that I'm going to highly recommend to everyone. I think you can buy it from Lifeway for like boxes of 20 for like five bucks each. If you're a small group leader and you're thinking about something like that, this could be really a really good gift. Uh, but this walks through his turning everyday conversations and gospel conversations. Jeremy Scroggins, this part I'm stealing from him in this book, just different language. But he, they walk you through writing down a gospel statement or a transition statement and how to share the gospel, what I'm going to go over in a second. And they walk through all these different steps. I would highly encourage you if you're like, I want to walk through this, think about it. It's a really encouraging book. And also it's just because their church has done this for years and they've seen unbelievable things. God's done unbelievable things where they're at. And they're down, I think, around Miami. So if you think Columbia is hard, go to Miami. Um, but with that, then you want to steer into the conversation. And so there's things like, I haven't been through, you know, this, the exact situation that you're in. I always say something like, because I draw out the pain point, I, you know, I haven't been like, wow, that seems like that's been a lot. I haven't been in that exact same situation, but I've been in like similar types of situations and you like were my life it wasn't like and do you want to hear what like what helped me could I share that with you like what helped me on this deep level and by that point usually there's like a there's an openness maybe they say no you're like okay cool (laughs) conversation over but they say yes what do you say okay so and I'm landing the plane here and it's going a little bit long so what do you say so you can take out a napkin You guys, some of you have heard this, the three circles. This is just a simple way to share the gospel. So when you sit down with someone, you take out a napkin. You can draw it in the snow with your finger. The best time I ever saw, we didn't have paper, and we were literally cleaning a deer, and the person did the gospel with blood on the floor. And I was like, this is so hillbilly, but it's so amazing. Um, And so, uh, but at the same time, I was like, that's bonus points, gospel presentation with blood. I was like, that's legit. Anyways, so do this however you want. But first, so yeah, what I've learned is that we live in a world that is broken. You can turn on the media, you, you know, news, you can watch, go on social media. It's clear we live in a broken world. Things aren't as they're supposed to be. We have death and disease, all the different things, confusion. And no one ever, you get there and they're like, wait a minute, oh, nope, I think it's all rainbows and unicorns right? No, everyone usually is going to agree, but you can use this language in terms of whatever you just talked about. Like our marriages are falling apart. Why can't we make them work? All this, use the language that you've just been talking about. Then you go into, here's the thing, I, I, don't, I don't believe what, what I believe is what the Bible says, that things weren't made to be in this broken state. They were made by God's design, and it was good. God's design, good. Whatever words you want to put in there, and God created the world and was good. This is why you have beautiful sunsets and all these things. And we were made to live in this reality. But what happened is over time, and we could later look at it in the Bible how this happens, but in sin, man rebelled, just said, I don't want to live in this design. I want to live in my own, by my own design. I want to pursue that goodness on my own, in my own way. I, have, I, I think I have a better way. And so man pursued this, and this is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is deviating from God's original design. And that's what's actually led to the deep brokenness within us. Now, being stuck in this state, we've, we see all kinds of ways that we try to do, escape this. And so we try to escape this through, through things like just, you know, success and a career and putting our lives together. And that's one way of doing it. Uh, another way that we do this is through, like, actually religious people try to do it through, like, being kind of self-righteous and trying to just do it through empty religious stuff, and they seek it in that way. But there's no real spiritual change. And then you also get people who... In, in brokenness, they actually try to uh, get a, away from it through, like, drugs, sex, entertainment, like, just pleasures we try to get. There are a lot of ways we do this. Are there any, uh, you know, might ask them, are there any that you see? People try to do this, and they might have some. But here's the issue. When we try to get away from the brokenness and escape it, what happens is this ends up like, like a bungee cord pulling us right back into that brokenness. And so even though we try to escape it, what we found is again and again, I know I did in this way, and I might list some of my ways, and I just found myself right back there. It was actually even worse, the brokenness. Now it just usually permeated our relationships. But God in his love did not want us to stay in that state of brokenness. But instead, God entered the world in Jesus Christ, and Christ took on our nature, he took on our sin, he took on our brokenness upon himself, and he entered the grave, and then he rose again, conquering that reality. And, and the reason why he does that, and G- Jesus says, if you will come to me and you will repent and believe, 
Repent of this way of brokenness and you will believe and trust in me. And what that means is not only for the forgiveness of your sins, but you will also make me the Lord of your life. And you will follow me. You'll say your ways are good and I will trust you. Even though right now I don't have it all figured out, I will trust you and I'll follow your ways. Then he says that then he will change us and we'll be restored to that original design, that original relationship with God. And we can pursue that growth pursue that life in him. See, it's actually very simple. It took me about three and a half minutes. But along the way, you can ask questions. You can draw things out like, have you seen this? What do you? But at this point, here's the thing. You've now given them the gospel, and then you want to sincerely invite, right? I, I also, I thought about crassly calling this seal the deal, right? This is at the point when you want to say, like, do you feel that right now, like this, which one looks more like your life? So actually right now it's this brokenness. Okay, is there anything right now, do you want, like, is there anything right now that would keep you from repenting and believing and following Christ and giving him your life? And at that point, then the conversation takes on whatever it needs to take on. But at this point, you have actually been able to share the gospel in a simple way with the main elements of the gospel to hit the different things wherever it's coming up, wherever the disconnect is, wherever it's just they don't understand or if there's something there that's just like, it brings it up where it's like they're hearing for the first time of God's grace. And it's put in terms of you're able to tailor fit this to whatever brokenness is in their life. And you want to bring to that sincere invite. Don't, you know, just share the gospel. And I know I've done this before. I've like, we talk about all these beautiful truths and I'm like afraid to actually go there. But it's like just a simple phrase that you're ready with. Like what would keep you from making that decision today? Ask that question. A lot of people, it's like, oh, this is awkward. It's like, yeah, it's awkward for all of us. We're talking about death to life. <laughs> but you know what's more awkward? It's just walking away and not responding. And so this is how you can present the gospel. But then you've steered it there. You've spoken. You've short, you share the gospel. You sincerely invite. And then after speaking, sovereign trust takes over. At this point, what you do is you have to think through, I, I think so often, you have to normalize the fact that there are three ways people broadly respond in Scripture to the gospel. You know, it, it, we tend to think like, oh my God, goodness, my friend rejected me, or they said, I, I just, you know, no, it's not for me, and they walked away, or whatever, and we go, oh, I failed. No, faithfulness is sharing the gospel, and you're not going to do it perfectly. I don't do it perfectly. I'm sweating. My palms are all sweaty, and I'm doing it on a napkin. It's getting all wet, and they're like, what's wrong with your hands? I'm like, I just have hormonal issues. I'm not nervous, <laughs> right? Like, I get it. But in that moment, what Scripture gives us is, and this is in the book too, where it's like you have, you have largely, you have these different, you can think through, is this a red light? Okay, yeah, Scripture says sometimes people pick up stones, they reject them, right? They call HR <laughs> in the worst case scenario. But your friends might just be mad at you for a while. Like, yeah, that happens. It doesn't mean you were unfaithful. It actually means you were faithful. Or it might be that you just are thinking about it, normalize it, going, okay, there's a yellow light here. Like they said, hey, I will, like with Paul, we'll hear you again tomorrow. Praise God. Maybe that means you can set up a, a coffee time the next week or, hey, when, when would you want to follow up on that? You give them the napkin or whatever you wrote it on and like, hey, you can keep thinking about it. If you want to read, I can give you Bible verses if you want that you could do some mining for yourself if you're interested. And then you have that follow-up conversation. Or it's a green light. Green light is when they, they come to believe. And, and then at that point, what you say is, okay, uh, the way that I've, they say, yes, I do want to respond. I say, hey, when I came to Christ, why, the way I did this was through a prayer. I prayed a prayer and I asked God by faith to forgive me for my sins. And I usually at that point will spend just a little bit of time making sure they understand what we mean by sin, the depth of it and the seriousness and just to make sure it's not a flippant thing. But at that point, then you can be praying for them. So you might share that with others in your life. And this gets to the speaking plan where you, you just continue to develop and strategize and think about ways that I can continue to build this relationship and go further in this. And especially if they come to Christ, they're interested in following Christ, you might be thinking about different books or resources or reading the Bible with them. And so these are steps that then you can take. And, and, and by the way, speaking plan, what I would say is think in terms of this. If you're like, who should I share the gospel with? Start with a category of people. Just list all the people in your life. You're like, well, that's too broad. And you go, okay, start with places. Where do you spend a lot of your time? Are you always in the same coffee shop? Are you always in the same workplace? Are you always in the same store or whatnot? Like the same cashier every week? The third place, so people, places, the third would be passions. This is the most, where I've had the most traction. Now, because here, here's what I mean. If, if you're a businessman, for instance, you own your own company, 
other people who are businessmen or have their own companies, or if you're an artist and you meet other artists, people who have the same passion as you will tend to actually be drawn to the same things in life and especially usually have the same pattern of trying to find, fix the brokenness with the same things. And so if you found like freedom or healing or you found life in those things, then you're able to really connect with them and share the gospel in a way that's really acute and really connects with what they've experienced. So I want to encourage you to be thinking, like, strategically, who are the people, where are the places, where are the passions that I have and the people around me where I could connect and we could easily bridge into speaking, the, I could speak the gospel. Lastly, it's just supplication again, that you would pray for their souls. This is not by your power. This is not by your intellect. It is not by your wittiness. It's by God's power. He raises the dead. Listen, uh, Here's where I'll end. We, we want, as a church, we've talked about we want to see 1% of Columbia come to know, love, and obey Jesus over the next five years. We want to see the restless where there's confusion and there's turmoil and there's this need, this desire for life, but they don't know where to turn. We want to see the restless find renewal in Jesus. We want to see them find that restoration that comes in rediscovering the life, discovering the life that they were meant to have in Christ with God. But for that to happen, we have to speak. For that to happen in your family members' lives, you have to speak. For that to happen in your friends' lives, you have to speak. For that to happen also, as Jesus says, in your life, you have to speak. Last night I was, um, I was going to do a different closing here, but last night I was watching one of those, um, was, uh, one of those French films, and I was like, I don't know why I'm watching this. It feels like torture, but I'm watching it, and. Um, it's called The Triangle of Sorrow or Triangle of Misery. And uh, it's a newer film. It's a French, or I don't know. I don't know what it is. But they, uh, and it was a good, uh, multiple levels, very artistically done, but very slow going. But, but, but critiquing kind of like classes. And, and it starts, though, with this. I promise it's going somewhere. It starts with this young couple. Handsome guy, model, strong, athletic, successful. He's got a girlfriend, and she's beautiful. She's a, she's a social influencer. And so she's, she's, she's well-regarded. She's approved of. She has all this affirmation, hundreds of thousands of people who follow her. She's smart. She has really everything you would want to gain in this world. It's, so as I, was, I watched the movie, and I, I like to go in and, like, understand the different depths, because it's one of those, like, you have to, like, it's an art piece, so you're, like, trying to interpret it. And um, so I'm always the one, like, going online, trying to, after I try to figure it out, like, reading about it drives my wife nuts. But I'm trying to read it and understand. And then as I get to I'm like, uh, I'm reading it, and I actually felt as I was watching it, because then eventually, you know, they're, they're well-known, they're beautiful people, then they're, like, on a yacht, and they're living this life. And I felt in my own soul, like, man, I wish I could gain that life. Be honest. I'd already written this sermon. I'm a pastor, and I'm watching it going, I want that life. I want to gain that life. What do I got to do? Right? You ever feel that? Like, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we do. And as I'm, feel, I'm, I'm recognizing I'm feeling this, and then I go and I click on the, the cast, and I'm looking at it, and I, I start reading about stuff that right when this movie was coming out, this young actress, incredibly talented, beautiful, 32 years old. Suddenly, soon after, but the movie, the filming ended, but before it went public, went into the hospital with it looks like septus and bacteria infection and died. Like that. Now, of course, it hit me because of the irony of what was just presented in the film and the meaning of it. Uh, but also, the reason why I say that is we... <laughs> We talk about death equals gain because we so easily believe in the world we're around. We're inundated with messages that say that's how you gain life. You gain it here. And don't get me wrong, there are lots of good things. Like, I want to be on a yacht. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but when a good thing becomes your God, it ceases to be a good thing. And, and what happens is these things take hold of our hearts and we try to gain life through them, a life in this world. And here's the thing, today our life could be here, tomorrow it could be gone. Your life, the life of those in your, your neighborhood, my life, 
And, and it's not just this get out of hell thing, but it's because Jesus is saying, I want you to have everlasting life. I don't want you to try to gain this world and then you lose your soul. Instead, I want you to gain your soul. You can lose this world, die to it, and you will find life forevermore. There are people all around us. We don't know if we have tomorrow. People all around us don't know that they have tomorrow. And they're all around us. We're trying to gain this world, but we're losing our souls. And what Jesus says in the midst of it, will you speak? Will you say the simple thing? Will you refuse to affirm the lie? Will you then go there and tell them of where there is life forevermore in me? Jesus says, when you speak and you die to the comforts, you die to the reputation, whatever it might be that you need to die to, what happens is you gain not only potentially your neighbor's soul, but also your own soul. But what Jesus says here is you must make the choice. And the choice is to speak. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these, these truths, Lord, that are Lord, we <laughs> are reminded of so many things that are in this passage that are elsewhere in Scripture that you say, by, uh, because of my authority, go therefore. As you are going in your life, by my authority, because I'm the ruler of this world, I am the king, and I bring life, go. Jesus, this is more than just our opinions. This is more than just our, uh, just our taste, just our preferences about how to do life. Lord, help us where we don't truly believe this, where we believe it is just my preference, and so maybe not for someone else, but we truly believe this is the reality you've created and the life that you've called us to. And Lord, help us to step into that. And Lord, as we do so, would you actually, would we realize that we're abiding further, we're finding truer and richer life. And Lord, give us grace, give us wisdom. We're all in different places of life and different careers and different pathways where this has to be played out in different ways, Lord, that we would be shrewd, but Lord, also that we'd feel the weight of witnessing and, and, and also the need to witness so that our soul would not go astray. So Lord, would you give each individual person here the wisdom of what that looks like in their life? It can be so easy for me to pontificate about this when I'm a full-time pastor. But Spirit, would you lead each individual here to what our calling is in our daily life? And Lord, in the midst of if we do receive hate, Lord, that I ask that we would, your love would comfort. Your spirit, you would comfort. And we'd be bold. And in it, we would die to ourselves and gain not only just our neighbor's soul, but ours as well. In Jesus' name, amen.